0: the spectacular investor, advisor, entrepreneur. She infuses so much energy into the projects that she works on. And on this episode, we discuss so many things, including her shiny object syndrome (laughs) that allows her to follow her intuition and learn more, explore, research, and travel to all the places and to read about all the various things that interest her, which is a lot. I highly, highly recommend her weekly newsletter that shares three ideas that she's been researching, and it covers such a wide spectrum of topics. Elaine's mindset is fascinating to me, and it's clear that she doesn't care to follow a traditional path, that she is successfully able to put away the should computer and work on projects and with people that bring her joy. She is such a positive force, and I love how self-reflective she is. And so we talk about how she has gotten to where she is, and I enjoyed the two maxims that she shares about that, as well as her seven-week solo journey in China, It was really cool to hear about the three rules she imposed on herself during that trip. Please enjoy this conversation with the fantastic Elaine Zelby. Hi, Elaine. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Ian.
0: Thank you for making the time. And a big thank you to Chris, who introduced us. He knows how much I'm drawn to and inspired by people of action. And he described you as such a doer and someone who has such incredible energy and enthusiasm for Learning and tinkering and going down the fun rabbit holes like he does. And so, big thank you to Chris. And usually, I try to consume all the media and interviews and content that the guests that I have on my show have produced. And I have to admit, I couldn't go through all of it with you because, in part, you're so prolific. And so, (laughs) even reading one of your newsletters takes me a few hours because then I go down these rabbit holes, which I love how you call it. What is it? The shiny object syndrome, where you just keep. Find new things. And so I love that. But unfortunately, I couldn't read them all. But for our listeners, they would have heard a brief summary of your fantastic background and know a little bit that you're an investor, an entrepreneur. And I can't wait to get into that. But first, the way I start my show is I usually like to dial it back and really share a lot more about where people grew up. So if you don't mind rewinding even before your engineering
1: days at Stanford, but really where you grew up. Happy to share it. I was actually born in Oklahoma, of all places. Not many people, I think, in the Bay Area can say that they spring from Oklahoma. My parents both grew up in Oklahoma. They had me in medical school, actually. They were quite young, but for Oklahoma that's pretty normal and pretty quickly after i was born my father was doing his residency and we moved to chicago and so most of my life grew up in the midwest in chicago and it was an awesome place to grow up but outside of the midwest i'd really never seen the country and went to middle school high school in chicago area and when i was in high school i played every sport imaginable growing up i did softball and swimming and track and field hockey you name it and my very senior year I decided not to do field hockey. My best friend was a cross country runner and i never really run, but I was looking for a sport to do in the fall. And she convinced me to join. And I was like, oh man, running really. But I ended up being very naturally good at it. It was just one of those things where it kind of clicked and joined the cross country team. I won the first race I ever ran. And it was kind of an exciting thing when you start to feel like you're really good at something. So I ended up placing higher in state than anyone had from our high school and became kind of this like cross-country person. And through that, I kept getting a bunch of colleges interested in having me run. And then I was looking at where do I want to go? And I had only been looking East Coast or Midwest because in the Midwest, that's all you look at. And I'm such an outdoorsy kid and just loved everything nature. And I had a lot of adults whose opinions I really respected asked me if I'd ever looked at Stanford. And I said, I hadn't, hadn't really been to California. And I convinced my mom to take me to visit. So we go visit, and for anyone who's never been to Stanford's campus, it looks like you're on the set of a movie, and there's hundreds of bicycles everywhere. Every student is on a bike, and I just fell in love with everything about it. We were staying in downtown Palo Alto. We walked down Palm Drive, which is this mile-long walk up to the campus. It was a beautiful, sunny day. All the people were on the bikes, and I looked at my mom, and I said, I'm coming here, and I did. I did. That brought me to the Bay Area, and I never left. So I did undergrad and grad school in mechanical engineering, specifically biomechanical, focused more on the healthcare side and medical devices. And when I graduated, I moved to San Francisco, and that's where I've been ever since.
0: Amazing. Well, I went to Cal, so I should be hissing, but I have to say, when you go to Stanford's campus, you hear like the Beach Boys in this amazing soundtrack, and it's always a beautiful sunny day almost in Palo Alto that, to be fair, it's almost as pretty as UC
1: Berkeley's campus, almost. <laughs> I will say Berkeley is a fantastic campus. The first time I went there though, I had never been to or been around a big school and Stanford's quite small. I think its total population is 6,000 undergrads and Berkeley is, I don't know, in the 25, 30K. I was so overwhelmed with how many people there were because Stanford's so spread out and Berkeley's pretty condensed because you start to get up in the hills and I was like, oh my God, there's so many people but it's gorgeous, definitely very comparable.
0: Can't go wrong in the Bay Area, I would say. But so going back to your engineering day's How did you choose biomechanical engineering?
1: I, as a kid, always built things. I was literally this kid who would create pulley systems across the house to do various things. So I had a contraption set up where I could open and close my door and send messages in tennis ball cans throughout the house. And I had the ability to flush my toilet from bed and turn on and off the lights. And I would build all these types of robots and contraptions. I just love mechanical things. I'm Jewish and one year for Hanukkah, I honestly asked for one present and I just wanted plungers because plungers were the best way to make a fort. They were a great way to stack them and to create these really cool infrastructure to build these insane forts. I kind of grew up always building things with my hands, And when I started at Stanford, I actually started as an aeronautical, astronautical engineer because I wanted to be an astronaut. That was my goal forever. And I came to the realization between 18, 19, when I was a freshman, sophomore, that the lifespan of a human is just not that useful when it comes to space exploration. And it was a harsh reality, but I realized I don't think I wanted to do that if I wasn't going to be the one going into outer space. I didn't want to sit behind a computer and just watch robots go into space. I wanted to do it when I had that realization, I had always been taking classes on the mechanical side and I loved them. They were my favorite classes. So it was a pretty natural fit for me to go down that direction. On the bio side, my parents both went to med school and had me there. So I've always grown up around healthcare. And I think it's one of the biggest needle movers for society and humanity. And I liked having that type of impact. So it was a cool way to combine both my interest in biology and sciences and healthcare with the ability to build physical objects. So it's on the path around medical devices, which is quite slow and painful when you actually get into the work world, but it's pretty cool when you're doing it from a more educational and theoretical perspective. Amazing. And so what was your first job out of college? Out of college, I had done internships at Boston Scientific, and that's where I learned I did not want to do medical devices. It was a really great opportunity to see how a big med device company is run, but it's also incredibly slow. And I did the calculation in my head that it would take me eight to 10 years to have a job I was really excited about. I'm very impatient. That was not going to fit the bill. I wanted to start my own company right out of school, but was a little bit too risk averse and to this day still am. And I ended up joining an enterprise software company as one of the first employees. Good opportunity for me to get on the ground of an early stage company, understand how a company is built, but also learn skill sets that I had never been exposed to in school. As an engineer who also was doing the entire pre-med requirements, I didn't really take a lot of other classes outside of that. So I didn't have business skills, didn't have business classes. And that's where I ended up building a lot of skill sets in my first couple of years out of school. And what was your role at the software company? I started on the product side and pretty quickly ended up building out the go-to-market functions marketing, growth, inside sales, business development, those type of things. This company I stayed for five years, which is the longest I've had in any stint. It went by fast. When I joined, we were only a few people and pretty quickly we grew fast. We ended up raising around $70 million from great venture capitalists like Andreessen Horowitz and Charles River Ventures. So it was a good opportunity for me to be with very seasoned executives. Our founders were significantly older, maybe 20, 25 years older than me and had been around the block multiple times and knew what they were doing. So I got to learn a ton from them and really watch and see how they ran a company.
0: Amazing. So five years with a seasoned team and also amazing LPs, it seems like you did a lot of everything. So that accelerated your learning in all these different verticals. What encouraged you to leave and go somewhere else and where did you end
1: up going? After a bunch of years at the company, I felt like I had learned a ton and gotten a ton out of it. But I also felt like I was starting to plateau in terms of where I was at there and opportunities within the company. From there, I went to Slack actually, and Slack seemed like this incredible opportunity. It was a rocket ship. This was when they were around five, 600 people. It was, I guess, 2016, 2017. And it was a very cool new collaboration tool. It was something a little bit different than what I had been doing. We were doing top-down enterprise sales. These were many 100 k if not million-dollar deals, which was really fun to get to work with a sales team and learn how to build up that sales go-to-market motion. But coming from a different direction of that bottoms of SaaS was something I didn't know and wanted to get experience in. So really cool opportunity to see that and see that grow and be a part of a hyper-growth company.
0: And obviously now, Certainly a lot of people know what Slack is. How long were you there for? And what was it like for you to learn the culture and work in that
1: environment? Slack was ultimately not a great fit for me. And I think I learned some really interesting lessons there. One, I'm a very irreverent person. I am not a great employee. I am a very good person when you give me a ton of autonomy and you give me a goal and you let me free to figure out how to do it. I will hustle and pull every string imaginable to hit that goal and I will make it work. I do not drop balls, but I do not like being told what to do. And I do not like being slowed down with red tape and bureaucracy and things like that. And even at five, 600 people, you're going to run into that. And it was something I was not used to and also something I'm just not particularly equipped to deal with well. So it was a good learning opportunity for me to also realize what I'm good at, what I like to do and what I don't like to do, what I'm not particularly good at and what I'm not patient with, to be quite frank. I was there for about six months. And I think it was a really interesting time for the company in that historically Slack had been very SMB focused and they were hundred percent bottoms up, grew like wildfire organically, almost accidentally. And then they started moving up market into the enterprise. And the company had been relatively famous for a while saying they didn't have sales and wouldn't have sales, and then ultimately needed to hire sales and needed to build out the enterprise function. So not only did we build out an enterprise product called Enterprise Grid, we had an entire new arm of the business that was coming from more traditional enterprise software, top-down, sales-heavy. And I joined to be in support of that side. And it was an interesting time when you have a DNA of a company that's much more consumery now trying to make Mix and mingle with something that's much more enterprising. So it was also kind of cool to see how you try to do both. I think it's a challenge that Slack has done better than most companies, but it's a challenge in general. Most companies have to pick one or the other and can't be wildly successful at both.
0: I love that. Did you ever read Ben Horowitz's first book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things? Yeah. And I loved how he mentioned the tension between the two businesses of sales and engineering and how that could just kind of butt heads. But for you, going back to Slack, what were you thinking being there for six months where most people would kill to be there. It's an amazing company. You're right in that perfect trajectory. And you had the courage to say, no, this is not for me. What were you thinking? And what did you think would happen after that?
1: Part of my irreverence and impatience also comes with recognizing that life is short. And I, for one, believe life is too short to be in things that make you unhappy. And I knew, I think by that time I had been in Silicon Valley long enough and had enough confidence in my own skill sets, abilities, and networking capabilities. I'm very extroverted. I had met a lot of people. I had found different pockets of people. I had started my own side hustle consulting business. So I knew I could always fall back on that. And to me, it was just one of those situations where I don't even care about the upside. I just don't want to do this anymore. And I know that there's a bazillion other opportunities out there for me. And I'd rather go and push on something else. At the same time, I had also gotten really involved in the blockchain crypto space. This is early 2017. And this is Before the whole hype cycle, I had actually gotten very excited about it when Ethereum launched. I had met Brian Armstrong briefly at the Andreessen Horowitz office back in 2013 or 2014. And I didn't quite understand Bitcoin. It was not something that got me excited or I really fully wrapped my head around. But Ethereum to me opened my eyes because I love this ability to program smart contracts on top of the blockchain and create programmable applications, not the money piece, but the application unlock and removing the middlemen. And I, got bought up in all the ideology around that. And that's what really got me excited. So I was doing a ton of research. I helped a woman who is named Laura Shin, who runs probably the most successful podcast in blockchain called Unchained, I actually cold outreach to her and said, hey, I'd love to help you with the podcast. Here's what I know about podcasting. Here are all the things I can do. Will you meet me for coffee? And I sent her maybe four emails and she responded and we went for coffee and I ended up helping her get that off the ground and do a bunch of the back end stuff that wasn't Laura. And that was my entree into the space too, because we were bringing on every major guest you can imagine. And so I got to see it from a 10,000 foot view and decide where I wanted to land. So I had gotten pulled in that direction while Slack wasn't really fulfilling me on the work side. And it felt like a great opportunity to say, hey, I'm going to cut my losses and go do something that's really pulling me as opposed to something that's hindering me.
0: I love that. Well, Laura's show is pretty much how I gained a lot of my crypto knowledge, because in the beginning, several years ago, she had Olaf and Vitalik and all these guys who gave you the fundamentals at the time where now there's so much content that you're like, gosh, where do I start? But she really broke it down well. So kudos to you for helping her build that. It was fun. You're at Slack, it's up and coming, but you decided to leave, but also you glossed over it very quickly that your side hustle is most people's full-time job, and you were doing that <laughs> in combination at Slack, and also helping someone launch a podcast. But after you decided to leave Slack, where was your mindset? Where were you thinking? I'll go back
1: to the side hustle for a second, because this is actually an interesting story, and I try to help a lot of people who are trying to get this off the ground think through it in a little bit more systematic way. It happened completely accidentally. Back in 2012, 2013, early days when I was at Capriza, that enterprise software startup, I had gotten really into growth, growth marketing, growth hacking, and then everything around sales and marketing ops, all the things you need to grow a business, and had gotten drawn into the growth hacking movement, met a bunch of people around that. But I also love meeting new founders and meeting new people. And so anytime somebody was looking for help or advice, they'd usually point them in my direction. And I'd be happy to give people an hour of my time, but that was it. And I kept getting asked over and over and over again, would you either join us or would you do a project with us? And finally, I agreed to do a consulting gig with a company. And it was great. I spent maybe five, 10 hours a week with them. I felt like I really could move the needle quickly. I could show immediate impact. I could get them to a place where it was good enough. And then they could bring somebody in either full or part-time to take it from there. And they referred me to more people. And they referred me to more people. And it snowballed. And I also realized at the same time that if I started working with venture capitalists, their portfolio is constantly growing and they're investing in new companies. Every single net new company, early or growth stage, has trouble or needs help on growth. That is the number one thing companies, once you have a product and market, are focused on. So I had an unlimited number of deals coming my way, and I would decline most of them. I typically only would do one to two at a time. I tried to carve out only 10 hours a week, but it was just such a fun way to not only get to meet a ton of founders, but I also got to see 30 different businesses and business models. I did bottoms-up SaaS, top-down enterprise, consumer, things that were selling to only 400 applicable customers in the wireless carrier space, to people selling to, Billions of consumers. And so you start to get this muscle of really taking every company with fresh set of eyes and trying to think from first principles of, okay, who is the audience here? Where do they live in the physical and digital world? How do I find them? And then how do I acquire them at a cost-efficient way, given the price point of the product? And it was a really good analytical skill to hone and just channels to learn. I know a lot of people, I'm seeing more and more these days are opting not to go work the nine to five job and to do that full time to your point. And I think it's a great way for people to get to work on a lot of projects and have a lot of fun and have a little bit more of a chill life and better work-life balance. But I like to keep myself busy, as you mentioned, that was always a side hustle for me. And some of the podcasting or content things have always been side hustles. When I left Slack, I ended up going to Consensus, which is a very fascinating company, if you're not familiar with it, in the blockchain space. One of the co-founders of Ethereum, his name is Joe Lubin, he created this company called ConsenSys, which was meant to be a venture studio model. We were spinning up and incubating around 50 different projects building on top of Ethereum. They were across pretty much every application category you can imagine, from things like music and digital rights, all the way to supply chain and asset tracking, to DeFi and financial applications, to everything in between. I essentially was running the product marketing and growth functions to sit across the entire spectrum of companies. Thinking through how do you build templates, guides, tools that scale, as opposed to having to do one off. That was a really great way for me to understand portfolio approach, which I can now take to the venture capital side. But man, that was such a fun time to be in the blockchain space. That was right when everyone first got introduced to blockchain and crypto. And I remember the holidays that year; it was everyone was asking me, "What is this? Explain it to me." So it was a fun opportunity to really sit at that ten thousand foot view. That's awesome. And how long were you at Consensus for? I stayed there for a little over a year. And at the same time, I had also been already an active advisor at SignalFire. And so ultimately, what pulled me away from consensus was SignalFire gave me an offer I couldn't refuse.
0: I love that. Well, I know of Joe Lubin because when I think about Ethereum, I think about Vitalik, but I saw... One of my favorite things was Ronnie Chang's video about what Dogecoin and Bitcoin was. And he was there, he described it, and he just had such a great demeanor as he's getting this comedic representation of what Dogecoin and Ethereum was that I just loved his poise <laughs> in that video. But so one thing is, I know we in a prior conversation talked about your path. And before Consensus, you took an international trip that I thought was so life-changing. Was it before you went
1: to Consensus? It was when I decided to leave Slack. Before I had made a decision as to what I was doing next, I kind of decided I need to just get away. And I would love to explore that because for
0: when I heard it the first time, for me, that's what education is about. It's not academic education, but it's the idea of the social education and the way you described this trip and all the learning lessons you did and also the self-reflection and self-awareness you got from the trip and then after. I just loved it so much. And so if you don't mind sharing why you decided to go where you did the structure that you placed on yourself and then some of the lessons learned?
1: I love solo travel. I'm also five to 110 pounds. I'm very small, but very petite, but I've always loved solo travel and I don't get scared or nervous about being alone or having to find my way in countries where I don't speak the language. I find it to be such an eye-opening experience and just such a test of will and fortitude and just figure it out this. I've always been very fascinated by Asia. When I was in high school, I spent some time in India. I wore a sari to my prom. I've been obsessed with doing henna and mendi. I still have some in my refrigerator right now as a hobby and pastime. And when I got to Stanford, I decided I wanted to study Mandarin. So I took a few years of Mandarin in college. It is a very surprisingly simple language to learn from a spoken perspective because there's very little verb conjugation or tense. However, from a writing perspective very, very complex. And from a Western speaker, the tones were not so easy for me, but I love the language and I love the culture. And I'd never been. When I quit Slack, I decided I was going to buy a ticket to China and I decided to start as far Northwest as I possibly could. So I flew into Kunming in the Northwest province, right next to Tibet. And I bought a ticket about seven weeks later out of Shanghai and I had no plan, but I gave myself three rules. So the rules were no data plan, no VPN. So I couldn't access things like Google or Facebook or most of the Western websites and only public transit. And there's some great apps like Trip that make it really, really easy to be able to take buses and trains and things like that. And I decided that every day I'd wake up and decide, do I want to stay in this place or do I want to move somewhere else? And so it was just a figure it out day by day situation. And it was awesome. I would say the first seven to 10 days, I did not see another Westerner at all. And the way that they speak versus the way I speak is quite different. And so I struggled a lot, even asking where the bus station is. I would go up to somebody and ask how I thought to say, where's the bus station? And they'd be looking at me like, what? And then they would finally figure it out and they would say, "bust," how they say it. And I had never learned that word, like just totally different way of speaking in a dialect. So it was just one of those situations where you figure it out. People are friendly. People are nice. I kept getting so many funny looks because everything specifically the food was so inexpensive compared to things here. And I just wanted to try everything. I would go to a restaurant by myself. All the kids with their families were pointing at me and laughing, but I would order these huge dishes and everyone's sitting looking at me going, is that just for you? But it was an awesome, awesome experience. And I made my way through the country, went around the West. I love outdoor stuff, as I mentioned earlier. So I went to a bunch of the national parks. I went to probably my favorite was Zhangjiajia, which is where they filmed Avatar. So if you've seen Avatar Mountains, It was spectacular. I planned to stay for a day or two. I stayed for four and a half. I could have just gone everywhere there.
0: Did you map any place or city you wanted to be in or otherwise you just knew in seven weeks you wanted to fly out of Shanghai?
1: I had a few places I knew I wanted to go to. Zhangjiajia being one, Huangshan being another. And then I wanted to go rock climbing in Yangshua, which was actually the place I found the most Westerners. It draws a ton of rock climbers from around the world, specifically Europe. And that was fun because I stayed at a rock climbing hostel and the people were way better than me, but it was a great group of young people that I could actually go hang out with. So that was fun. And I really wanted to go to a few other more cities. I didn't get to Beijing, I didn't get to Xi'an. I have plenty of places that I didn't get to explore, but I got to see a lot of more outdoorsy places. And I did go to Shenzhen, which was so fascinating, because I think in the West, we think of it as manufacturing capital of the world. But it is the most pristine, modern city, gorgeous buildings, everything was so new. It was not what I was expecting. But very cool opportunity. I will say after five or six weeks of traveling by yourself, it definitely gets lonely. And it was so apropos. I was walking one night back to my hotel and it was down this really narrow little street. and I had seen it wasn't really graffiti. It was more of like a poster. And it had said in English, actually, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I took a picture and it just resonated so strongly because I go fast. I don't stop. I don't sit down. I don't put my backpack down. And I saw a ton while I was there, but you do get lonely after a while. So there is something to be said about slowing down and being within people that are important to you. Amazing. Well,
0: speaking on that, You clearly went fast alone, but at what point were you thinking, okay, I don't have VPN. I don't have a data plan. Did you miss it? Or were you in that headspace where seven weeks I can get through it? Or at what point were you like, gosh, I really miss working. I really miss the States. I really miss all the things that you
1: thrived on. I was ready to come home at the end. For me, the no data plan VPN, I don't mind that at all. It's a challenge. It's a puzzle. It's making my life harder. But in a way that I find that challenge enjoyable. So I liked that piece. I think by the end, there's so many logistics and planning nuances that happen when you're traveling alone that it kind of wears on you after a while. And also the constant motion, the constant moving, you kind of just want to sit still for a bit. So I think I was ready, but I loved the trip. I loved seeing as much as I did. The second I get home from vacation, I don't know if you're like this too, I'm constantly planning the next one. The day I get home, I'm like, okay, where am I going next? This year has been really hard not being able to travel, but I look forward to that opening up again soon.
0: Amazing. So then you get back from China and did your perspective change in terms of what you wanted to work on or how did you think about work in that structure? We're six or seven weeks away anywhere and let alone China, it changes perspective in so many ways. And so how did you think about work? Do you think, oh, let's just start making my side hustle my main hustle? Or how did you think about conventional nine to five structures?
1: This is actually an interesting story that I haven't told very many people at all. But one of my colleagues from the first startup, he was our VP of product and a really good friend. I'd gotten to work with him for nearly five years and thought the world of him. He had left and started a company when I was at Slack. And he had tried to convince me to join. But obviously, I decided to go to Slack and give that a try. And I've been trying to help him and his co-founder get it off the ground and be as useful as I could. And when he found out that I was leaving Slack, which I don't even know how, because he found out before I had told people, he calls me and says, you have to join us now. And my heart said no, because I wasn't excited about the idea, but I loved the idea of working with him. I really liked his co-founder. and. They wanted to bring me on as a co-founder, and the idea of being a co-founder is something I think I've always wanted to do. And I told him that I was going on this trip, and I wasn't making any decisions until I got back. And I'd had an offer from Consensus. I obviously had this offer to join as a co-founder, and I had a third offer as well. And I decided no decisions. I'll figure it out when I get back. And when I got back, I ended up deciding to say yes and join him and his co-founder. And I decided. I'm going to do this. I want to start a company. This is a great way to do it because I know and trust him. And within even a week or so, I knew my heart wasn't in it. And I knew that having spent five years at a company, you have to be all in. And I wasn't all in. And it was funny, my husband at the time, I think we were engaged or dating, but I called him and was distraught. I couldn't figure out what to do. And he asked a really, really great question. I had this like pit in my stomach and he's like, if you decided that you were a hundred percent in going to commit to this, would that pit in your stomach go away? And I was like, no, it wouldn't. And he's like, well, then you know your answer. And he was right. And I decided, I told him, I don't think that this is the good opportunity for me. I want to be 100% there for you if I'm going to do this company. And if I can't be, you don't want me here either. And I think we had a great conversation about it. And ultimately, I had wanted to get in on the ground floor of this whole new blockchain thing. That was where my heart was. And so that made the decision a little bit easier to then go and join Consensus.
0: Amazing. So you were there for a while and you built up quite a team. But if I know you, at this point, far enough, I know that you're going to move on to something else that nurtures your soul. So how long were you at consensus? And then did you pivot from blockchain or what was the next step after consensus?
1: I spent a year at consensus. This was a crazy time to be there. We went from maybe 200 people to 1200 people in under a year. We also were operating as a holacracy, which is a term most people are not familiar with. It is a Flat company organization. So the most famous example of a company trying to do this was Zappos and Tony Shea. And holacracy literally means no management. It is completely democratic. Everyone is flat and it is very much voting by committee. So oftentimes people self-select to be on various committees to take on ownership over certain things or certain decisions. A good example is we needed to figure out compensation, given we were a remote-first, holocratic company. So how the hell do you figure out how to pay people, especially if you have somebody who's living in Thailand and somebody who's living in New York City? The way we did it was every different part of the business got to, (laughs) I called them tributes, but got to select a tribute who was going to go and be the representative on that team's behalf. And they were going to talk to their constituents and stakeholders to understand what mattered to them. And they were going to bring that information back to the committee. And the committee was going to go and create a framework around how compensation was handled at the org holistically. And that was how things were done. It is a fascinating model. I think it scales not super well. I think that is what happened with every other company that's tried it, but it was a really cool thing to see and to be a part of. And there was some magic there. I don't know if it still exists. I would imagine parts of it do. I think the org looks different today than it did in 2017, but it was magical. It truly felt like a parallel universe or something. I really enjoyed my time there. It also was crazy time. It was this hype cycle, crypto boom and bust. Everyone wanted to be in, then everyone wanted to be out. And I really loved it. I don't think there was anything negative I can say about it. It was more of, I had this opportunity that I don't think I could turn down. Signifier. I had gotten to know the team there for about two years as an advisor. I had worked with close to 10 of the portfolio companies as somebody that was helping on growth and go to market. And I just saw how different the way their approach to venture was compared to every other VC out there. And I also recognized the fact that it's not easy for somebody that has zero finance background. I quite literally have never taken a finance class in my life and somebody that isn't a founder that's had a successful exit to enter as somebody that's in a mid-level, not junior position at a venture capital firm. So it felt like a really awesome opportunity and a team of people. I just wanted to be around.
0: For those who don't know, can you give a little bit more color about SignalFire? And you'd mentioned it's a venture capital firm, but just a little bit more color on what you focus on and what stage of the investment.
1: We are a VC, but we're definitely a different flavor. So we actually look much more like a technology company or technology startup ourselves. If you look at how we're structured, we have about a third of the team as engineers and data scientists building products about a third of the team are on the platform side. These are our in-house recruiters. We host over a hundred events a year. I think at this point, it's probably close to 200. We have people that focus on PR, leadership, coaching, development, and these are all in-house. And then a third of us are on the investment side, the more traditional deal side. And we do early stage investments seed through series B. We're currently investing out of a $500 million fund But I think for us, we really try to focus on how do we act like that technology startup and build products to match against the most common founder pain points. Like any good startup, we did a ton of user research. We talked to about 200 founders. We asked them the question, after you fundraise your first round, what are the biggest challenges you hit next? A few things popped up over and over again, the number one thing being recruiting. Once you have Two, $3 million, you're going to deploy most of that capital into headcount. And hiring great talent is extremely hard and very competitive, especially when you're competing with the likes of Google and Facebook, who can pay a lot more. So, we built an entire product called Beacon Talent, really focused on supercharging startup recruiting. We also built a ton of products around market intelligence, competitive intelligence, co spend analysis, all the things that will really move the needle for the company. And then we try to pair that with the humans on the other side. So, human recruiters, human people to help with PR. leadership development and things like that. So that's a little bit about us. We're generalists. We invest across tons and tons of categories, but it's a definitely different take.
0: What's amazing, you've been there for several years, given your track record. That means you must super, super love it because usually after a year or two, you're onto the next in a great way. One person I interviewed, Lake Dye, who is also in tech, and she's an amazing entrepreneur and also professor, but she referenced a book called The Beginner's Mind, And she had a quote that I loved, and I pulled it up, But it says, In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the experts, there are few. And for you, I feel like you take this beginner's mindset in every subject. And so with your newsletters, it's all these eclectic and really amazing areas that you're looking for. I think one was mobile lobotomy and life-size board games and plant-based meats, but all these things. And so I just love and I'm so inspired by this beginner's mind that you have. How do you think about, now that you've been at Signal Fire for a while, but also your past experience, fluency in a topic or in an investment framework versus learning and searching and tinkering around so many other subjects? I just would love to hear your thoughts on that. It's a great
1: question. And I think ultimately I found the ideal role for me because it allows me to just tap into that need for a beginner's mind and just this insatiable curiosity and shiny object syndrome. I get bored so quickly. I for one am very jealous about those people who are true domain experts. They go so deep and so laser focused and they just know everything. But that's not me. I could not do that. It's just not in my character. And I get excited by moving on very quickly. I get excited from context switching and jumping from thing to thing to thing. My most fulfilling days are when I'm spending time with passionate people building in the most disparate categories. And I love the ability to talk to somebody building infrastructure to power at-home diagnostics for healthcare. And then literally two minutes later, it's somebody building direct-to-consumer e-commerce. And then afterwards, somebody building a SaaS tool to help improve sales efficiency. I thrive on that. And I think that's how my brain works too, which is also very reflective in my newsletter. And when I found this, it felt like a perfect fit. And the cool thing about early stage investing is there are an innumerable number of categories and number of companies they are constantly fundraising and constantly building. And tech is shifting so quickly that even in a category, when you become somewhat of a domain expert, so I'm the go-to person for things in the bottoms-up enterprise SaaS world. Yet yeah, that's changing quarter for quarter in terms of what do buyers wanna see? What gaps are not filled? Where are founders actually building? What is differentiated? What is super saturated? what is being adopted, all those different things. And I'm trying to keep a finger on the pulse of that. And so it feels like this game where you're trying to pattern match, but you're also trying to predict and see around a corner. So I can't predict what's going to happen next year. I have to predict what's going to be happening in five years out because when you're making a seed stage, bet, that's ultimately the trajectory I'm looking for. I like that game. It feels like a challenge, but it also feels like something you can become educated enough on to have a gut conviction that this is a good bet. And The whole concept of a portfolio is many of your bets are going to go to zero and that's okay. But you have to take some big swings and have a few outliers that are successful. One of the things we have been doing, which we're reevaluating now, is we try to vote on our deals. And the voting isn't necessarily to decide, are we going to do it? It's more about in a year or two, can I look back at how my decision-making framework was thought through? And why did I decide what I decided? How had I been thinking about that opportunity? And if I was going to go and reevaluate now, how would I change that opinion? And I think it's a really interesting thing to document because it's a great gut check on how thoughtful was I? How deep did I go in that category? How naive was I about certain changing dynamics? And I like it. So I think it's been a really good fit for me. And I think because it evolves constantly, I'm not in the position to get bored.
0: That's amazing. I'm curious you're talking about looking back and reviewing your past deals and your process behind that and your framework. For early stage investing, if you can quantify for you and your process, how much you allow your gut check to move that ball forward. So you love the entrepreneur, you think that they're magnetic and that is the secret sauce, or is it much more the TAM of what they're doing and the actual business that they're trying to create or software that they're
1: trying to build? If I had to rank in terms of the early stage, so at seed, the three main categories I'm looking for are team, so founders, market, and product in that order. When you're making a bet at the pre-seed or seed stage, the reality is they're probably going to pivot once or twice, if not more. And the product you're investing in today is not going to be the product that they go to market with in two years. Is this team going to be super, super gritty? Are they going to figure things out? Are they going to hustle harder than everyone else? Are they going to be more competitive than the other teams? Do they have the skill sets to both build technical product and figure out go to market? Do I want to go and spend five years working with them? Those are kind of the questions I ask myself on team. And to me, that's probably the most important dynamic. And when we look back at our historical successes, when that was the thing that was the major bet, those have been the outlier successes for sure. Second is market. Even if you have a fantastic team and a fantastic product, if you have either a shrinking market, a not big enough market or a middling market, you're not going to have an outsized outcome. You have to have large TAM, growing TAM or market opportunity expansion. And then the final thing is product. Is this the right wedge? Is this the right product? Do people want it? Is it differentiated? How red ocean is this category? Those are the three main criteria that I evaluate on.
0: I love that. If you were to dissect that and go to your first one, How do you get to be a better investor when so much of it is based on how you perceive the team and the
1: talent and their drive? It's subjective, which is also why I've never had an issue spending time with other VCs who are competitive. We lead seed rounds. There are many, many other firms that lead seed rounds. Most times you don't have two leads in any deal. It's a zero sum game. If they're leading it, I'm not. If I'm leading it, they're not. However, there are so many deals and a deal might not be a perfect fit for me for a thousand and one reasons, and it might be a great fit for somebody else. So I've never had an issue spending time with those that are directly competitive with me because I know that there's no particular reason that they're passing me this deal. It's not that it's a bad deal. It's just not a perfect fit for them or they're conflicted out because of a portfolio company or something. I guess that's kind of how I look at it. I know other people look at it differently, but on the team, it's subjective. There's no question. There is no objective measure of, is this an amazing founder? And part of it is also disposition of me. There are certain people who might be a great fit for my colleague. My colleague would love to work with them. I wouldn't, and that's okay. And I think that's also why diversity is so, so, so important when we think about venture, both on the founding side and the funding side. It's very causal in that... If you're only funding people that look like the people founding them, you're going to have this repeated cycle and vice versa. The more people we get that have diverse backgrounds, opinions, life experiences, you're just going to get more diverse founders too that are getting funded.
0: I love that. I would love to be in your head one day as you're looking at all these deals and all these companies in different sectors and industries, given your background is so diverse in terms of both engineering and growth strategy and also on the investing side now, are there any attributes that you can collectively say, these are the characteristics that I have seen and over time, whether they're great leaders or great investors or great creators that you have teased out from all of your
1: experience? On the founder side or on the investor side? Maybe both. I mean, it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. Well, I'll do both then. On the founder side, there are a couple of things that I feel like I can pull out and point to. One is... There's something to be said about being able to storytell and to really project this strong vision for the future and the future state, because what it looks like today is not going to look exciting. Everything starts out looking like a toy. I forget who said that, but it's so true. How good are they at showing you something, their secret, their vision, and getting you on board with what the world could look like? That's really powerful. And that's so powerful for raising subsequent funding rounds. Even if the product is amazing and the traction looks great. Oftentimes, founders that are not great fundraisers struggle. They struggle to raise those follow-on rounds. So I think that's an important component is how good are they at storytelling and conveying that vision to people. Also having the right dynamic of skill sets. So when you're looking at a team, there are certain categories that I think require more domain expertise and certain ones that absolutely do not. And so I think this kind of gets into the funder investor side is being able to differentiate between those categories. Where does it really matter if I have somebody that spent 10 years in that space versus when does it not matter? And this person could have come from either somewhere totally different and got inspired or is a year out of college. And I think you learn that by pattern matching. You learn that by just more time in the field and more at-bats. The other things on the founder side, showing that they can weather storms, the ups and the downs, and be pretty level-headed, but also just push through is incredibly important. And there's so many ways to convey that. There's no one size fit all. I'm not looking for a certain story. I'm just looking for something that's going to give me that indication of you will figure it out when things are rough. And also you will not take when things are good to an extreme and lose sight of the eye on the prize. That's another thing I'm looking for. It's hard to articulate what I'm looking for, but that is a piece of it. On the investor side, if you are a generalist investor doing early stage, The ability to learn insanely quickly and get up to speed on a category that you're not deep in insanely quickly is a must. Unless you're focusing, many people choose focus areas. You might only invest in developer tools or only in healthcare or only in consumer. And it's a blessing and a curse in that you become a domain expert. You see more companies in that space. So you truly do have a better sense of how differentiated is this? How much do buyers actually want this? But For me, I just like the diversity, so I'm not one to want to focus. But when you don't focus, you are constantly having to get up to speed and you're constantly not the most knowledgeable person in the room. And I do a lot in healthcare and there's so many terms in healthcare that are constantly changing and CPT codes and acronyms they use and faking it until you make it, but also doing your homework and really trying to get up to speed. I think that's a great skill. You kind of have to have that innately to be good. Also the ability to quickly say no and move on. I can't get hung up on any one company, whether it's a company that I lost the deal for some reason, or whether it's a company where I just kind of can't make that decision of, oh, it looks interesting, but not amazing. I think the ability to give concrete feedback quickly and just to kind of keep plugging on as opposed to getting wrapped up in the, hmm, this might be okay. That's where people get slowed down. And it's hard. I think the first year I spent a lot more time building that muscle and then you start to get better at it.
0: I love that. I could ask you so many more questions about all the topics that you are interested in, because in your newsletters, you go from banks to healthcare and all the stuff. For one quick second, if you could expand on your newsletter and to share with our listeners how that came about and how you focus on the three things every week, but just to give a little bit more color there, and then I'll pivot to the questions I ask usually everybody.
1: The backstory here is for years, this is just my total natural MO. I'm constantly ideating on requests for startups or business opportunities that I see in the world. And I had this long running spreadsheet. I probably kept it over seven years of here, all the awesome ideas or companies I should build. And for a long time, some of them, I truly thought maybe I'll go build this. And I kept it mostly to myself. I shared it with some friends. I've also always been the kind of person where anybody who has a friend that's thinking about building a company or exploring a space, they send them to me and I'll take those conversations any day. I actually try to reserve between 5 and 7 p.m. now for walking meetings where I take phone calls, 30-minute phone calls for anybody who's at that ideation stage or something where they want feedback on an idea, feedback on an early company when it's not investable by us, but they're looking to have that conversation with an investor or with somebody who likes to ideate. I'll take those as walking meetings and it's great because I can do a lot more meetings and not burn my time. But (laughs) I had the spreadsheet and if I go back years, I can check off so many of them that have turned into billion dollar companies. And I know that I see opportunities and one of my superpowers is connecting disparate dots that most people don't see. And during the pandemic, I've always been terrified of publishing content in public. I always feel like I'm not the expert in anything because I'm such a generalist, or what if it's not well-written, or what if people don't like it, and I'm not a social media person in general. So it was always a fear of mine, but during the beginning of the pandemic, I wanted to do something that was just holding me accountable, something that was repeatable and I have found I love podcasting and so that's something I continue to do, but I wanted something else that also felt really natural. And so I started this newsletter called Three Things and every week I publish three business opportunities that I see. And I try to walk through, I do a pretty good amount of research into the space and the category, sometimes for work, sometimes through personal means, but I walk through why do I think now is the right time to build this? How would I get it off the ground? How would I monetize? And then how would I expand? And They range, as you said, literally across the board from things that are like deep into healthcare and bio and pharma all the way to super fluffy consumer and gaming to banking to subscription running shoes to a snoo for an adult, everything in between. So they kind of run the gamut in terms of what I think about. But again, that's how my brain works. And when I launched it, I had no expectations. I have zero following. I have no social following. I had no email list and I wanted to see what would happen. And it's been so awesome. And it's also been one of those situations where it doesn't feel like work. It feels like fun. I actually think Chris was one of the people who reached out and was like, oh my gosh, how do you publish content weekly? And how do you come up with three new ideas a week? And I told him, I just do. It doesn't feel like work at all. And I think when you find something like that, that feels like fun and play and not work, that's something you lean into. And it's been really easy for me to hold myself accountable and to publish every week, no matter what. And it's been fun to grow the list. I'm not good at self-promotion. I'm horrible actually, in fact, but it's just grown organically. And I really appreciate people giving me feedback. I love when people read it and comment love when people throw other ideas out there or how they would iterate on it. But yeah, it's a zelby.substack.com and you get free business ideas every Sunday.
0: I love that. I subscribe, but I'll also link it to the show notes. It's one of my favorite reads every week. And it's similar to the feeling I have with the podcast where it just gives me so much joy. And selfishly, I get so much out of these conversations where I just get so inspired by everyone's enthusiasm, and energy, and certainly yours is truly, truly magnetic I actually decided I'm going to start adding a new question of what is your superpower? Because I just love the way that you described one of yours. So I absolutely love that. All right. So I'll get to the questions I typically ask everyone, starting with who or what inspires
1: you? I think part of it by nature of my job, I get inspired on a weekly basis by the founders that I meet. I love people that are so passionate about a space and just so crystal clear on why they're building what they're building and what needs to change. And I think Seeing that dedication and passion and just singular focus, which is also so hard for me to do. I just have so much respect for that. And that inspires me and inspires me to continue doing what I'm doing and to help more of those people get off the ground. And the more of them I can partner with, the better. But I love passionate people that are putting their time and money where their mouth is and trying to move the needle on anything.
0: You've done a lot of things and certainly a lot of accomplishments, a lot of great investments, a lot of journeys and travels. What are you most proud of? This is an
1: interesting segue, actually, I get asked a lot by either people that are new to venture or looking to get into venture, how do I get deal flow? And more recently, how do I do personal angel investments and things like that? And when I actually went and analyzed and thought about it, I get a tremendous amount of deals and opportunities to angel invest from founders that I passed on. Founders that I passed on who either said, I love the experience so much that I'd love to work with you continually, or, Hey, my friend is fundraising. I had such a good experience with you. You were so helpful. Is this a deal you'd look at? And that is one of the biggest compliments anyone could ever give to me. I strive to be helpful. I know it's such a VC meme. How can I help? But that's what I get enjoyment out of. I get enjoyment of actually helping and moving the needle for these people. And if the feedback I'm getting is, Hey, that was an amazing interaction and you did help. I can't ask for more than that. So I'm proud that I'm getting so many people continually coming back and saying, hey, I'd love to have you involved.
0: Fantastic. Well, certainly the last question I ask everyone is based on the name of the show. And we've talked a little bit about your struggles, a few cultural differences at certain companies you've worked at. The question used to be, can you share your most impactful failure and lessons learned from it? And over time, through the years, the question pivoted because the answer was always, Here's what I've learned. Here's how I grew. And so I'll ask you in
1: a reframed way can you share your biggest growth moment? One thing that I always think about is how have I gotten where I've gotten in my life, in my career? And when I analyze my big step function changes and opportunities in life, it's come from two things. One, in particular, giving away my time for free with zero expectation of return. And if you are genuine about doing that and saying, here is one thing that I know that I'm good at and how I can actually be helpful to people giving away your time for free will come back in spades. And I think it's very particular to the Bay Area, but it's extrapolated to anywhere. And I think now with everything's on the internet, but I find when you do something like that for somebody else, it's gonna come back. And so I think that's, to me, one of my biggest growth opportunities is just I put myself in the room simply by giving away my time with no expectation. So I think that's really big. The second is I'm by nature a very, very optimistic person. I don't see the downs as much as many other people because I always look at it as if you're a good person and you try to live your life in a good and rural way and you try to be useful to others, it always works out. And so even when you're having down moments, the sweet isn't a sweet without the sour. And if you just look past it and just have that optimistic view of life in general, I just always walk out of things in a positive mood. And so I think that just helps me bring energy to a room, just have that positive feeling and know that. Anything that's bad doesn't stay bad for very long.
0: I wish I could bottle up your perspective and remind myself of whenever I'm going through a struggling moment. I wish I had a little bit of a lane in me where it's the idea where it's not perfect for anybody. And the idea is when you are in that low state to get out of it faster and not dwell in it. And that's, I think, the hardest part about it. It's not like you're going to maintain this level of perfection. It's how do you get out of that bad headspace when you're in it faster than others or faster than you
1: typically do? What I find is while other people will go on social media and immediately start getting sucked into, look at all my friends and their perfect lives, I don't play that game at all. I will go for a walk and I'll go walk up to the top of Twin Peaks and look around at the city and just look at how beautiful a place I live in and have so much love for where I am and the ability to be in this beautiful place. And that pulls me out of it too. There's so many ways people get sucked down rabbit holes on the internet and it's usually not helpful for mental health not productive. It's different for everybody. For me, getting outside, getting just alone in nature and just experiencing the physical world and taking it in, it really helps me and kind of gets out of any funk. Amazing. What's next for Elaine Zelby? Keep doing what I'm doing. I'm really having a ball right now. I'm still learning the craft of investing. I'm still definitely growing my internet presence and my newsletter and trying to figure out how best to utilize that. So I think it's just kind of continuing a little bit more of the same at this point. I am in a place, which is very rare for me, but very, very nice, where I'm not constantly thinking about what's next. I'm actually thinking, how do I improve what is right now? And that's a nice place to be.
0: I love that. Elaine, thank you so much. This was so fun. And I had a blast
1: in this interview. I did too. I really appreciate you having me on.